again, the more we know about the science behind it, the causative agents, the better we can fight it. And, you know, I think some of these resources that Scott mentioned allow us to take what we know about the enemy and apply it so that we can do much better from a humanitarian perspective and hopefully make patients feel and function and survive better, either by preventing infections to those who haven't been infected and for those who have to give them treatments from which they derive much more intense feelings of well-being and that they feel like they've been treated properly and cured or healed from the disease. Have you, a loved one or a friend, been affected with Lyme disease? There are many different ways to go about diagnosing and treating Lyme incorrectly and very few ways to do it right. In this special podcast series, Scott Endicott, Dr. Ben Lockwin, and Tom Fox uncover the shortcomings in the current standards and practices and open up a dialogue about how we can better help patients with this disease. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the fifth and final episode of Understanding Lyme Disease, an exploration with Scott Endicott, a Lyme disease sufferer and executive leader in healthcare, and Dr. Ben Lockwin, a healthcare futurist. In this concluding episode, we look at being a good host, a path forward to living with chronicity and co-infectious agents. I hope you've enjoyed this five-part podcast series on this most devastating disease. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Scott Endicott, clinical research professional, and Ben Lockwin, healthcare policy maven, and also Star Trek aficionado. For our final episode in our five podcast series. Today, we're going to take up the topic of being a good host, a path forward to living with chronicity and co-infectious agents. So gentlemen, first of all, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. So we've talked a lot in this podcast series about the condition of Lyme disease, why early diagnosis is so critical. But let me now take that and ask you both with the concepts we've talked about, how should listeners, friends with the condition that may or may not be diagnosed, or certainly loved ones, approach that knowledge and use that to try to help people going forward? Well, I think that's really the multi-million dollar question again, or billion dollar question for that matter. So there's a lot still to be done and to be learned as far as the diagnostics are concerned. The treatments, as we've discussed, don't necessarily solve everyone's symptomatology nor their complaints about how they're feeling and functioning. And so, as Scott mentioned in the last episode, your own best advocate to make sure that you're seeking out the information that does exist in order to make sure that you can at least try to access the best possible available treatment options for yourself. Doxycycline. There are better approaches for people who have had Lyme for a long time, and some of those are more aggressive antibiotic regimens, but early diagnostics can lead someone to take doxycycline very soon after being infected with this bacterium. And what we do know is that the earlier the treatment is applied, the more effective it is. So To say early diagnosis is one of the most powerful things that can be done is not an understatement, but the early part is what matters. Just knowing you have it and then trying to treat it 
isn't as important as knowing you have it early. And then I think, as we talked about before on an earlier episode, the prevention aspects will always be better than the treatment. So to even not have this tick attach and start transmitting these organisms into you in the first place is really where we would like to see people. So prevention in terms of avoiding certain environments, certainly wearing insect repellents, wearing, as we talked about, permethrin-coated clothing, and that can prevent a lot of potential new infections. The CDC is estimating more than 300,000 new cases of Lyme in the U.S. per year. So there's a lot of people every year, year on year, who will now be contracting this disease, unfortunately. Let me take this in a little bit different direction, perhaps, and that's really around innovation. And this podcast deals with innovation. Ben has been on this podcast several times talking about innovation in various areas and various forms of innovation. But both of you all have discussed innovation, how you can innovate not only this field, but around this specific disease and some of the barriers to innovation. And I was wondering kind of if we could reflect on what are some of the next steps in this field to make it better within the context of innovation, but also within the context of a group of clinicians, physicians, and patients who may see innovation very differently? So there's a couple of different initiatives that are moving forward. And Tom, you've mentioned a couple of times that uh, this can be a really a foreboding sort of an illness because of this seeming kind of drumbeat of doom that kind of runs behind it all. But really, at the end of the day, this is an organism that is incredibly similar to many other treated, well-treated other infectious diseases. It's a spirochete that's shaped like many other treated organisms. And so the point being, with a high degree of focus and a high degree of a higher degree of what I would call broader thinking in terms of as Ben mentioned, diagnostic criteria and treatment approaches, I think there is a real opportunity to turn this around. There's been a massive shift in the epidemiology that's gone. So what is happening now is there's an increased acceptance more and more. As a matter of fact, there's a fantastic report, the healthandhumanservices.gov site, and it's the Tick-Borne Disease Working Group, as flexible of a title as that is, the Tick-Borne Disease Working Group put a report out to Congress in 2018 that was actually made up of patients and clinicians and patient clinicians, folks who are in the clinical treatment space uh, who also have been infected with Lyme. So there's a lot of empathy in that group that's not simply just based on the science, the stand back and watch science, but very much the elbow grease in. Uh, A couple of areas where that changes happening and where folks who have been through this challenge can kind of look towards is that within these working groups, there are options for clinical studies that are emerging. As a matter of fact, I was just looking at some of those options myself as a participant just to be able to contribute from a long-term treated patient standpoint, provide my uh, bodily fluids to science, hopefully, to help to learn things. But recognizing that there are changes coming afoot. There's been a much broader acceptance of Lyme in health insurance claims. That's actually uh, gone from being a very difficult diagnosis to one that's much more accepted. 
And so the additional stress of how you're going to pay for all this stuff, many of the Lyme's treatments, including some of the PIC line antibiotics, have also become covered by major health insurers as well. So there are areas that are moving forward progressively. And from the science standpoint, there's a number of different approaches. Unfortunately, a vaccine like the Limerix vaccine, Ben had mentioned from 1998, a vaccine will unfortunately only either keep infected ticks from actually doing harm to people or prevent the organism from taking root and provide antibodies more quickly, but it doesn't necessarily help folks with chronicity. So focusing on the chronic side is trying to find an effective Lyme friendly, if you will, physician that's at least able to think more broadly about diagnosis more quickly. At the end of the day, uh, as a non-medical professional, I would give the advice that whatever you need to do to get doxycycline into the body after you have had a tick bite, regardless of what your physician may be standing firmly on his solid ground and denying, I would advocate doing that. My family will tell you I'm an advocate in my own home and in my own family, anybody I run into that is talking about having a tick bite, anything like that, immediately I'll start to just push resources on them until they call the police on me or, you know, something else challenging happens. But there is so much that you can do from a caregiver standpoint. We mentioned in the last episode, you can also get into the Lyme community where there is a tremendous amount of empathy and understanding that the complexity of this moving target of a symptom set and a disease and a diagnostic criteria can really be helpful with providing some options, many of which don't work for everybody, but some will work for some. Yeah, I think I would say that if we imagine what this vector is in this organism, Sun Tzu, who wrote The Art of War, said, know yourself and know your enemy. And as Scott mentioned at the start of this episode, we do know lots of things about this particular bacterium that's the causative agent of Lyme disease. And we know how ticks feed. And it's really something that we understand a lot of the mechanisms, a lot of the pathology. So it's a disease that we can apply more and smarter resources to to improve the prevention and the care. So ticks are our pool feeders. And what that basically means is They create a bite, they inject saliva into the bite, and what they do is create this hemorrhagic pool under the skin, and then they ingurgitate the fluid. And part of this saliva is very interesting too, because the saliva accompanies the microbes into the skin. It disrupts the natural immune response to the bite itself, and it has an effect on what's called neutrophils. So here's yet again another layer of something that we know about that we can try to control or manipulate to improve prevention and care. And these neutrophils that your body would try to mount against the invading organism, they represent 60 to 70% of your white blood cells. And as we know, your white blood cells are what essentially give you a lot of your immune system's power. And so as this saliva comes in along with the organism, there are also other co-infections that come with it. And so there are a lot of Lyme communities that talk about co-infections, and these can include babesiosis, anaplasmosis, or leukiosis, relapsing fever. And these are all a host of things that we don't intend to cover in this podcast series here, but 
again, the more we know about the science behind it, the causative agents, the better we can fight it. And, you know, I think some of these resources that Scott mentioned allow us to take what we know about the enemy and apply it so that we can do much better from a humanitarian perspective and hopefully make patients feel and function and survive better, either by preventing infections to those who haven't been infected and for those who have to give them treatments from which they derive much more intense feelings of well-being and that they feel like they've been treated properly and cured or healed from the disease. Well, gentlemen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but this has just been a fascinating exploration, and I can't wait to see what we could all come up with for a next podcast series. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox. Hope you enjoyed and found informative our final episode, episode five of Being a Good Host, Plan Forward to Living with Chronicity and Co-Infectious Agents. Really, in this podcast, we tried to tie many of the concepts from the first four episodes around innovation and some of the barriers of information about how to change the standard protocols for the treatment of Lyme disease and the next step forward. Ben brought up Sun Xu, the famous Chinese military theorist of know yourself and then know your enemy. And really, that is the starting point understanding your own body, and understanding what you can do to take control of your own treatment. Early diagnosis is still as critical as anything else. We talked about how difficult that can be back in episode two, and then finding a physician who not only understands Lyme disease, but the potential treatments that may exist even outside the standard protocols of doxy or antibacterial agents that you might ingest. So many of the concepts we talked about throughout this podcast series, we reemphasized how important they are, both non-standard protocols, a variety of diets, healthy living, even yoga can help in this. But innovation is critical in this area. And as Ben reminded us, this is the million-dollar question. What can the clinician and the pharmaceutical industry do based upon the experiences of many patients? who have successfully negotiated living with Lyme disease. And when you have a flare-up, Scott talked about what he did when he had his last major flare-up, which basically incapacitated him from doing anything else. So the final message, I think, from this episode and really throughout this podcast series is you're responsible in many ways for not only your own body, but your own health. And when you have a chronic disease such as this, you obviously have to make changes to your lifestyle, but there are changes you can make to your lifestyle and go to help you be able to not only negotiate this disease, but actually have a fairly full and robust lifestyle going forward. Scott still bikes quite a bit and he's active and he manages this chronic condition that he has. I hope you've enjoyed this special five-part series. I've really enjoyed doing this podcast series as, as much as I enjoyed the 9-11 series, which premiered earlier. I'm going to try to do some different types of storytelling, and I hope you will join me on this journey on the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening.